Oh, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome again to Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church. Uh, if you don't know me, my name is Frank. It is good to have you uh, with us this morning, uh, the last Sunday before Christmas Eve. Um, we are doing and finishing our series uh, in Advent in Jonah this morning. And so if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Jonah chapter 4, that would be awesome. Uh, and while you're doing that, I'd like to remind you all that, again, we have our Christmas Eve service at 5 o'clock on Thursday, uh, this coming Thursday right here. Uh, hopefully we will be able to see uh, all of you there for a time of lessons and carols uh, as we celebrate the grace that has come to us in the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, and then next week, our good friend, uh, Reverend Ben Hine, will be preaching to us. Uh, so please do come uh, to hear him uh, give the word of God to us. Uh, and I understand that he uh, has some ex exciting news to share as well about what's coming next for him. Uh, but for now, let's turn our attention to Jonah chapter 4. Um, the, the sermon title is God Forgives Us When We Don't Deserve It. So uh, that means we're talking about grace this morning. We're talking a lot about grace. Uh, so do be on the lookout for grace as I read it. So we'll be reading the entire chapter, chapter 4, verses 1 through 11. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Lord, is this not what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And the Lord said, Do you do well to be angry? Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. He sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. Now the Lord God appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might be a shade over his head to save him from discomfort. So Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, God appointed a scorching east wind, and the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Let us pray. Father God, as we come this morning, we come with both a host of cares, but also a host of confidence. Lord, we think in a lot of ways that we are decent people and that we think we know what is right. 
As we come, Lord, we come like Jonah did, uh, convinced of our rightness. And yet we often do not care about your priorities, but we care about our own. Lord, as we come to uh, your word this morning, I pray that it would reveal to our hearts that self-confidence, that self-righteousness that Jonah brought to, that we bring as well. Lord, would you convict us of our sin? Would you open our eyes to the grace and the mercy that is ours in Christ Jesus? So be with us now, we pray. Change us, transform us through the power of your word. It is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So uh, let's rewind about 16 years. I think I was a junior in college. um, And at the time, I was the president of my Christian acapella group. Uh, It was the spring semester, and it was sort of toward the end of the semester. We had been working really hard in rehearsal for our one and only performance uh, that semester. Yeah, we probably should have performed just a little bit more, but we had been sort of, we didn't have that many rehearsals, and we really needed all the time to get to that uh, rehearsal because we weren't the greatest. Uh, But anyways, it was a weird year uh, in that we had a ton of women, and we had a ton of basses, but we only had one tenor in our entire group. Just a a sort of weird sort of quirk of uh, what the Lord had given us. Well, anyways, it was just a few days before our performance, and my friend, the tenor, emailed me and asked me to meet up. You can sort of, you have sort of anxiety as uh, as I'm talking about it, because what did we do when we got together at the student center, he told me that he wasn't going to be able to make the performance uh, because he had the opportunity to see his brother who was in the military, and he didn't really get that opportunity very often, and so he simply couldn't pass up the opportunity to see his brother. And so he started to apologize uh, for putting the group in the position to sort of go through uh, the performance without him and all of that, and I think I waited maybe like a beat before I just sort of unloaded. And I said, you've got to be kidding. We've been working all semester on this music and you're our only tenor. What are we going to do without you? What about the solos you were going to sing? Who's going to cover your part? How can you do this to us with only a few days left? And the volume sort of increased and increased and increased and increased. And what was I doing? I was screaming at him because I had decided, uh, because he had decided to do something that I didn't want him to do. And interestingly, that's exactly what Jonah does here in this passage. In verses one through three, Jonah is essentially beginning a rant, beginning to scream at God because God did something that he didn't want God to do. And then in verses four to 11, we will see God graciously teaching Jonah about grace and mercy. So let's start with verses one through three, where Jonah screamed at God, and we'll get back to uh, my story uh, when we get to uh, the second half of this uh, section. So let's look at verses one through three again. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry, and he prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? 
That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. And so why is Jonah so angry? It seems kind of strange, right? His ministry has just been a miraculous success. 120,000 people uh, came to repentance as a result of his ministry that we saw last week in chapter 3. 120,000 people. If, if 120,000 people see me preach, that would be like a miracle, right? <laughs> like maybe in my entire ministry career, 120,000 people might see me preach. But 120,000 people did not only see G Jonah preach, but they came to repentance. What a miracle. What a powerful ministry that he had. He should have been rejoicing, but he wasn't. So what's his deal? Let's talk about at least three reasons why Jonah might have been upset with God. And the first is because Jonah is a nationalist. Well, what does that mean? Well, remember, uh, at the time of the writing of this, in, in its context, Israel's borders had recently been restored and the economy was booming, right? Uh, wealth and money were flowing into, uh, into Israel and they, their prestige was uh, rising sort of on the global geopolitical scale. And Jonah was the prophet that had sort of foretold this return to prominence and affluence. And so things were looking up for Israel as a nation. And Jonah really was at the center of that. And so when we're looking sort of around geopolitically, we want to sort of consider who is going to be Israel's rivals. Who is Israel going to be competing against uh, on the sort of global scale? And Assyria to the east is certainly the chief rival, right? And so, in Jonah's mind, if it's good for Assyria, then it's bad for uh, Israel. So, relenting from destroying Assyria's capital is certainly bad for Israel geopolitically. And plus, wasn't God supposed to be Israel's champion? Wasn't he supposed to annihilate Israel's enemies? Well, the Syria, Assyria is certainly Israel's enemies. He, they are the ones that God was supposed to be Israel's champion against. So why is God saving them? Why is God showing them favor? And so in a lot of ways, Jonah is just like sort of caught wrong-footed. Like he's like, this doesn't line up with what I think God should be doing for Israel. And so in a lot of ways, Jonah is accusing God of treason. You're supposed to be playing for our side not for them. And then the second reason might be a ministerial efficiency. Now, what do I mean by that? From, uh, f from a sort of long-term point of view, God is relenting from disaster. It, we don't necessarily know if God has saved them, saved Assyria and Nineveh sort of in a grand, eternal, salvific, sort of eternal life sort of sense. And so... In Jonah's eyes, he's like, what's the point? They're just going to go back to their sin. They're simply going to return to their evil ways. This is just a blip in sort of the journey of Assyria, right? They've made their repentance, but they're going to go back to their evil ways. So what's the point of saving them now? 
they're just going to roll over the world with their evil and their atrocities. And so why not just destroy them now and just save all their victims, all of the suffering that they're going to bring? And so, and even if, let's say, a whole generation does sort of stay the course, the Assyrians are still going to be a massive evil down the road. And so there is a pessimism over sort of the salvation of God, if you would, right? What God is doing, the repentance, the character and long-term nature of that repentance. Might as well get rid of them before they do any more damage. And then... uh, there's the sense of justice. This is probably the, the biggest piece of Jonah's outrage uh, because it was just it, the, the seeming injustice of it. Assyria, as we learned last week, was known for its atrocities. They re- routinely carried out cruel and unusual forms of evil against their enemies and against even members of their own society. And so these were a people without conscience. And they didn't just do evil, they loved evil. And what about Assyria's victims, right? What about all of those atrocities? And they were really, really bad. Assyria ought to pay for what they had done. And God, you're letting them off scot-free, right? He's showing them grace. Where's, where's the hellfire, the brimstone? Where's the justice? Where's the judgment? And this was likely personal for jo- Jonah too, because Assyria's previous victims up to that point had almost assuredly uh, included some Israelites. And if they hadn't become uh, victims yet, surely the Israelites would definitely become victims in the future, right? They're rivals. They're going to fight at some point, And likely the Assyrians are going to win because they're bigger. And so where's the justice? And those are three seemingly valid reasons, seemingly righteous reasons, seemingly sensible reasons for why Jonah would be upset with God and why he didn't think God should have done what he did. But they're flawed. And we could go on all day about why they're flawed, and there's a lot of reasons why they're flawed, but let's talk about two errors. First and foremost... All of the reasons to be upset are founded on the idea that Jonah knows best and that Jonah knows what God should have done. Do you hear the pride and the self-righteousness, the confidence in his own judgment and his own wisdom that serves as the foundation for all of Jonah's reasons and his confidence in his rightness? Do you hear the pride and the self-righteousness there? It's sort of just foundational. It's it's almost as if it's an assumption, right? He just assumes that he's right. And so he doesn't even question uh, himself. He says, God, I knew you were going to do this and I tried to stop it. Why? Because I'm right and you're wrong. The audacity of Jonah, right? The audacity and the pride and the confidence that as if he understands justice more than God, who is the source of justice, Right? And there are so many assumptions about what, uh, what would and wouldn't happen in the future that are being made here, right? that it seems like Jonah assumes the worst about God because he assumes that justice will never be served, right? that God will never have Israel's uh, back, 
that he will not be faithful according to his covenant. So that's error number one, that he just doesn't stop to question his own hubris. And then, question, and then uh, error number two, there's the theologically incorrect assumption that Jonah and the, Assyrian, uh, the Israelites are just simply better than the Assyrians. Sure, uh, Israel didn't commit the atrocities, or as many atrocities at least as the Assyrians did, but they were still wildly sinful, uh, which all the other prophets could uh, attest to, which we spent, remember, a whole year in Jeremiah and thinking about how terrible the Israelites were, right? But here's what Jonah misses completely. Sin puts us all in the same boat. We all have an infinite debt with God because of our sin. It doesn't matter how big or small, your debt is infinite. You will never be able to pay it off. And so what's the point of being proud about having a smaller, yet, inf- yet still infinitely big debt? So some theologians love to say, you know, sin is sin, right? Meaning that all sin leads to the same place, which is hell. And to be proud of the fact that I'm less of a sinner than this person over here is to underestimate the profoundly dire straits that my sin puts me in, right? And the right view of sin produces humility, not pride. And so what's the point? What's the point of arguing over I am less sinful than this other person over here? And that makes us feel a little weird, right? Because we, we like to think of ourselves as better than the next person over there. And when we see somebody that does something wrong, we, would, we say to ourselves, oh, I would never do that. I would never be that bad. But it doesn't really matter because you're going to end up in the same place. So what if you are less of a sinner? You're still a sinner. I'm still a sinner. So why are we quibbling? Jonah's mistake leads him to essentially dismiss the Assyrians as what? As not being worthy of salvation, while at the same time he wants salvation for himself. And so Jonah doesn't see his hypocrisy. He doesn't see how how wildly inconsistent he is. And we could go on and on about sort of the things that Jonah gets wrong, and we'd be here all day, and trust me, there are far more reasons, but I cut it down because we don't want to be here all day. But let's just simply say that Jonah is wrong. It's the easiest way to sum up Jonah's position. He's just flat out wrong. He's out of line. But his issue is that he can't see it. And he's so angry that he's blinded by his own self-righteousness. And so he can't see that he's out of accord with God's priorities, that he can't see that when he thinks he's in step with God, he's actually out of step. And so God gives him grace. God gives him grace when he doesn't deserve it. Because remember, sin inherently means that we don't deserve any kind of grace. And grace, by definition, means that it goes to those that are undeserving. God gives grace to Jonah when he doesn't deserve it. How? By revealing Jonah's error in verses 4 to 11. And before we get too far, it's important to note that it's definitely a grace that God gives to Jonah that he continues to put up with him. Right? Remember, 
This is an immensely frustrate. This must have been an immensely frustrating prophet for God, right? Remember back in chapter one, he rebels against God's call upon his life. And what does God have to do? He has to send a storm and then a fish and then wait out for three days. And then the fish, the fish gets him out of him, right? And then he has to send him sort of grudgingly to, to Nineveh and then do a great work. And now what do we, where do we end up? We end up right back where we were at chapter one, as if Jonah hasn't learned anything yet. And so the fact that God is sticking with Jonah and is teaching him about his own priorities means that that's grace, that the Lord has not given up on Jonah. So instead of writing Jonah off, God teaches him by appointing a plant, a worm, and a wind. So let's again read verses 4 to 11. And the Lord said, do you do well to be angry? And Jonah went out of the city and sat to the east of the city and made a booth for himself there. And he sat under it in the shade till he could see what would become of the city. He's just sort of sitting there hoping that the Lord is going to change his mind, that he gets a front row seat to some fireworks, right? Now the Lord appointed a plant and made it come up over Jonah, that it might shade uh, might be a shade over his head and to save him from his discomfort. But Jonah was exceedingly, so Jonah was exceedingly glad because of the plant. But when dawn came up the next day, God appointed a worm that attacked the plant so that it withered. When the sun rose, the, uh, God appointed a scorching east wind. And the sun beat down on the head of Jonah so that he was faint. And he asked that he might die and said, it is better for me to die than to live. But God said to Jonah, do you do well to be angry for the plant? And he said, yes, I do well to be angry, angry enough to die. And the Lord said, you pity the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. And should I not pity Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? And so we know that the plant the worm and the wind are a part of God's lesson, his teaching of Jonah. Why? Because of the word appointed. These weren't random events. They were deliberately sent for the sake of opening Jonah's eyes and to preserve him as grace. Uh, the word appointed is used three times here, right? Three times in the span of three verses, really. And it's only used one other time in the whole book of Jonah. And you can guess what, that, uh, what verse that was in. That's back in chapter 1, when God appointed a great fish to swallow him. Right? It shows that God is trying to teach Jonah. And so both in chapter 1 and here in chapter 4, God's appointments were meant to be graces to Jonah. And it's easy to see how uh, the great fish was a grace, right? It kept Jonah alive. He didn't drown. But, and sort of the plant here is also relatively easy to see, right? It shaded Jonah from the hot sun. But the wind and the worm are also graces too, even though they brought suffering to Jonah. You see, God was bringing Jonah on a journey, right? It's the whole, the whole point of why we see both the plant, uh, all of the plant, the worm, and the wind is because he's making a point. He's bringing Jonah on a journey to reveal to Jonah his own preoccupation with himself, his circumstances, and his desires by contrasting his own cares 
with God's cares. So in short, God wanted to show Jonah what, uh, that he was thinking, thinking in the ways of the world and not according to God's ways. And so how does jo- God set Jonah up for this lesson? Well, first, God has to show, uh, make Jonah care about something. He has to show Jonah that he actually cares about something. And so he sends the plant. And the plant made Jonah what? Exceedingly happy, exceedingly glad. And it's really the only time that we see Jonah uh, pleased in this entire book. It's the only time that uh, the text tells us that Jonah was happy. And that's kind of pathetic, right? Um, I mean, he's, the only thing that has made him happy is this plant. And Jonah really loved this plant. Right? It provided shade while he held up hope for Nineveh's destruction as he carried the torch for his own rightness. And you can just sort of picture him out in his booth outside of uh, the east side of the, the city, which really is sort of interestingly, sort of symbolically, right? To exit the east is to put him outside of um, sort of the promised land, if you would, right? When... Um, the Israelites enter into the promised land. When they enter into the temple even, they are to enter from the east going into the west. And so when he exits, he's sort of exiting out of God's will, right? And what he's, what's he doing? He's hoping and praying that he'd get, again, a front row seat to fireworks, to hellfire and brimstone. And so he's thinking, what a great plan, right? So useful, so lovely. It's it's. God's grace upon my life. I love this plant because I love the Lord's grace upon my life. But then the next morning, just as easily as the Lord giveth, the Lord taketh away. And in comes the worm and down goes the plant. And if it weren't enough to leave Jonah to bake in the sun and to mourn the loss of this lovely and useful plant, God sent a scorching wind to make Jonah utterly miserable. And so how does Jonah uh, react? Well, true to form. And that form is the drama queen that he is. Because he got super angry, right? He says, it is better for me to die than to live. And if that isn't like the most outrageous like reaction to losing a plant, you're like, come on, Jonah, dude. Like, grow up. But what's really interesting about his reaction is that he's just as angry about the plant dying as he was over Nineveh's salvation. Remember, back in verse, I think it was three, he says the exact same thing. He says, it is better for me to die than to live. And so the parallel requests to die are intentionally there to link Jonah's anger over Nineveh with his anger over losing the plant. In a sense, Jonah is saying that he's just as angry that this plant died as he was about 120,000 people not dying. And that juxtaposition is really clear, right? In verses 10 to 11. And the Lord said, you pitied the plant for which you did not labor, nor did you make it grow, which came into being in a night and perished in a night. He cares about a thing that is so ephemeral, so fleeting, And yet he does not care, should I not pity Nineveh? He does not care about Nineveh, that great city in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know their right hand from their left and also much cattle. 
So why was Jonah more concerned about a plant that is here today and gone tomorrow than he was about 120,000 people that were created in God's image? And if that contrast were enough, that tag on the end of verse 11, and also much cattle, means that apparently simply caring about the animals, if he didn't care about the people, right, he should care about the animals. Apparently the animals in the city were enough to care about the city's salvation. And Jonah is showing what? He's showing a clear lack of care for them for them. And that's all the Assyrians and the Ninevites were to Jonah. Them. They are not us. And so Jonah felt free to demean, to denigrate, to dismiss in his heart. They are not us. And so Jonah could hold them in contempt and pray for their destruction and hate them and not care about them at all. Do you see the contrast here? How much he cares for so, so lowly a plant and how much he does not care about people who are inherently far more valuable than this plant. And the way in which he gets there, the way in which he sort of puts them in another category so that he doesn't have to care for them. And I think that verses 10 and 11 where God explains what Jonah is doing, I think that those verses must have landed like a lightning bolt to Jonah's heart. In an instant, his eyes must have been opened to just how wrong he was, just how ungracious and how unloving and how uncaring he was. Why else do we get this chapter? Remember, Jonah is the one writing this, and he doesn't come off looking very good in this chapter. So why do we even get chapter 4 to begin with? He must have included it because he wanted us to see the way in which God is teaching him to grow in grace. How the Lord has instructed him in uh, the Lord's priorities. How embarrassingly clear it must have been to Jonah right after those words were spoken to him. And it was exactly the same for me when I was shouting at my friend all those years ago. So how did I come to myself? How did I come to clarity when I was screaming at my friend who was going to just go see his brother, whom he loved? Well, a stranger came up to me as I was tearing into my friend, and he said, Hey, dude, uh, we all can tell that you're pretty upset, uh, but could you chill out, lower your voice, and maybe do this some, someplace else? Uh, you're really disturbing everyone that's trying to study here. Because remember, I did this in full view of the public in the student center. And those words landed like a lightning bolt in my heart. Because what was I doing? What was I doing? I was displaying what I really cared about. And what I cared about wasn't grace, wasn't mercy, wasn't the gospel. What I cared about was me. And that juxtaposition between what I professed to care about and what I was arguing about. Remember, I was the president of a Christian acapella group that sought to display and proclaim 
God's grace and mercy. That was what I professed to care about. And the juxtaposition of what I professed to care about and what I actually was doing was disturbing. Here I was wanting to display and proclaim God's grace and mercy. And what was I doing? I was spouting anger, vitriol, pettiness, and vengeance. And so what does that mean? It meant that I was wrong in the same way that Jonah was simply wrong. Did I have reasons to be upset? Well, yeah, he was leaving us on a lurch. Like, it's understandable that I would be upset. But yet, my priorities are clearly out of accord with what the Lord's priorities were. I didn't love my, my friend or care for him in that moment. And I, honestly, I didn't love and care Jesus and his commands either. I only cared about myself. And the shame and the guilt that I felt in that moment and the sad disappointment that I continue to feel to this day when I think about it really are profound. So what does that mean for me? And what does that mean for Jonah? It means that neither of us deserve grace. The Ninevites didn't deserve grace. But all of us get it nonetheless. You see, grace is inherently scandalous because the recipients don't deserve it. It's unmerited favor. And so where's the justice? How can there be a just God? How can a just God give us grace? Well, he accomplishes that on the cross. You see, there Jesus wins for us even the possibility of grace. He took all the wrath and judgment that we deserve, the hellfire and brimstone that the Ninevites deserve, as well as the hellfire and brimstone that Jonah and I deserve for our sins. And he took it on the cross. And what does he give us in return? He gives us grace. But it's not just grace that just sort of doesn't lead anywhere. It's a grace that leads to repentance and then ultimately to himself. And so that our eyes were opened so that we could see the ugliness of our self-righteousness and of our self-centeredness and of our astonishingly massive pride is made possible by the cross. That we can turn from sin is made possible by the cross. That we can turn to God to see him, to see his loves, to see his cares, to see his priorities is made possible by the cross. That's grace that leads to repentance. But the fact that we also get Jesus himself is what makes Jonah an Advent passage. Right? The fact that we, get jo that we get Jesus himself, that we get God himself, is what makes the Advent, uh, this an Advent passage. So when God looked upon the city of Nineveh, what did he see? He didn't see people that he needed to destroy. He saw 120,000 image bearers that were lost. And he didn't want to leave them in their sin and their evil. Did you notice how helpless the great city of Nineveh was made to seem in God's destruction of them? They don't know their right hand from their left. They can't even get something so elementary, so rudimentary, so foundational. Such is the spiritual blindness of their hearts and what sin does to us. They don't understand good from evil. They aren't able to discern that. 
And so what happens? Someone is sent to proclaim God's word to them, to open their eyes to their sin that they might, be re- they might repent and be saved from disaster. In short, he had pity and compassion upon them. And in the same way, the Lord looks upon the creation. And what does he see? He sees us. He sees his beloved sons and daughters languishing in sin and evil. We were by nature children of wrath, Ephesians tells us. And yet he has compassion on us. For we were like sheep without a shepherd. And so what did the Lord do? He did what he did for Nineveh. He sent someone to bring his word. And it wasn't just anyone. It was the word made flesh, the incarnate deity as we sing in our, in our uh, Christmas carols. It was Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. And that word wasn't just repentance lest you be destroyed, but a grace that leads to repentance and unto life through faith in Jesus Christ. What's the call to the Christian? Repent and believe. What's the call to the non-Christian? Repent and believe. Believe that Jesus paid for your sins, that you may not only have eternal life, but that you may have him. And so, my friends, that is the good news of the gospel, that sinners like you and me and Jonah may have our eyes open to how our priorities are not God's priorities, that sinners like you, me, and Jonah are saved from our sins through Jesus Christ. You see, God is all about grace that pursues people. And we're all about ourselves. As we look at, the li- at our lives in this deeply polarized time, be it over politics or over the pandemic, how sure are we of our rightness? How committed are we to holding on to what we think is just and fair? And what do we do when we do that? Oftentimes, in the privacy of our own hearts, we dismiss scores of people that hold different opinions. And we dismiss them as lost causes. They will never see how wrong they are. Are we holding on to what we think is right and standing by waiting for the Lord to smite those we think is, are wrong and evil? Jonah was chastised because he didn't reflect God, his God who loves people that don't deserve it. He didn't show grace to others when grace was shown to him. Are we the same way? Do we care about people or do we care more about being right? Will we have compassion upon the lost and love them by doing what Christ did for us? Will we draw near to the Ninevites in our lives, even when it comes at great personal cost, discomfort, and risk, to proclaim God's word and his grace so that we can live according to God's priorities? This morning in this room, I can tell you definitively that there is a divide. Our church is like every other church in this country. We see divides in every church over masks, over what is wise, over politics, 
over Trump, over Biden, over whatever. And that is us, and we can't get away from it. You know it, and I know it. And so the question isn't necessarily how do we come together in unity, but the question is, will we show grace to one another? Will we be willing to lay down our lives, our cares, our comforts, our rightness for those who we think don't deserve it? Will we love those that we disagree with and disagree with pretty strongly? Jesus has given us grace beyond comprehension. And so we are able to bear with one another, to disagree and yet still love each other. That's what we're called to. That's what Jonah is calling us to. Let's bear with one another in grace as Christ bears with us in our sin. How frustrating we must be to the Lord. How convinced we are of our own rightness when it comes to our sin and whether or not it's righteous or not. And yet the Lord gives us grace that we might be transformed by him. Think about that. You need to pray. I'll take some time to uh, pray silently and then I'll close this with a word. Father God, this is me. I stand before you and this congregation confessing that I'm just like Jonah, that I do not give grace, that I do not desire to give grace, that I desire to murder my brothers and sisters in Christ in my heart when I think that they are wrong. Lord, I do not give grace. I desire to see me win me right, me vindicated, and them wrong, that they might see their error. That's what I want. But Lord, you desire for us to love those that don't deserve it. You desire us to love those that are lost. And Lord, I think there are a lot of people that are lost. Lord, open my eyes that I might see that I am lost. Lord, that you would transform me to be gracious. That you would transform me from the anger that was displayed in Jonah. That it would, be turn, it would turn into the gracious gentleness of the Lamb. Lord, you have come to deliver us from ourselves, from our own rightness, our own wisdom. For Lord, your wisdom is far greater Lord, would you make us and make me gracious people? People that love to love the lost. So Lord, help us to be a people of your grace and of your mercy. Open our eyes to see people as you see them. Move our hearts to love them, we pray. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Please stand and join us in a closing song, our new Christmas song. Amen.